introductory thoughts on the Gospel of Matthew to let you know why this sermon was placed there, uh, a little bit about Matthew and his background, and then we'll launch into the Sermon on the Mount. The sayings of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus are quite confusing, to say the least. They leave us with a sense of, that won't work in this world. This Sermon on the Mount has been twisted and pulled out of context and made to say things it, it doesn't say. It is meant to be taken from A to Z. It is meant to be started and finished as a sermon. This is not a collected group of gatherings of Jesus' teachings. This is a sermon begun and ended at one time. Now, the habit of any Jewish teacher was to repeat and repeat and repeat. So these teachings were repeated everywhere he went. The disciples heard them all the time. But on this occasion, he sat down and ran through this three-chapter sermon. And it's an amazing piece of work. He is the prince of preachers. You know that. He is the greatest orator who has ever walked the face of the earth. If you think of the great orators who, who have amazed us through the years and through the centuries and, and people even of our generation, they don't hold a candle to Jesus Christ and his ability to preach. And yet he never preached in a building per se. He never preached in a beautiful facility with pews and seats. Never a commodious pulpit as one ancient preacher talked about. Wesley, I think it was. His preaching was in the field and on the mount and by the lake. Isn't that interesting? No sound system, no comfortable setting, no elegant building that amazes us. And yet he preached as no man has ever preached and left us scratching our heads, if you will. The Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, or Levi, one of the twelve disciples. He was a Jew who wrote to Jews. This is the purely or mostly Jewish Gospel to the Jewish audiences. There are more references in the Gospel of Matthew to the Old Testament by far than any other Gospel. Because if you're going to convince a Jew that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, if you will, you must convince him out of Old Testament scriptures. And so that's what Matthew does. Jesus is depicting Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew is depicting Jesus as king. Therefore, this is the king's edict, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew was a Jew, and yet he was a hated Jew. He was a Jew that had betrayed himself to the Roman government. And uh, there is no worse traitor than that to a Jew. So he was hated. I find it fascinating that God used a hated Jew to write a gospel to Jews. Why in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount? And by the way, I don't think Luke's account is the same sermon at all. I think it's a different occasion. It looks too different. This is the only place that you find the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is in the Gospel of Matthew because... The Jews had a very specific idea of the Messiah. The reason they missed Jesus Christ is because he fulfilled hardly any of the qualifications that the Jews were looking for a Messiah. 
They were under the boot of Rome. All they really cared about was deliverance from their present situation. They wanted deliverance from Rome. And they wanted a Messiah who would deliver them. And they were looking for the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now there are a lot of occasions in the Old Testament that the Messiah was predicted that he would conquer and reign. And he will on his second coming, but not his first. So the meek and mild Jesus is not who they expected at all or wanted. Now just to give you a little feel of the times in the land of Palestine or Israel at this time. Years before this, they were under the heel of the Syrians. The great Maccabean rebellion of a couple hundred years before this had rid the land of the terrible Syrians who oppressed them. The celebration of Hanukkah is really a celebration of the cleansing of the temple that the Maccabean family, that's a fascinating history. You ought to know that history. It's fascinating. So they were celebrating, they were celebrating the deliverance of that, but they hadn't got their freedom but for a few years when all of a sudden Rome came on the scene. Now you understand, fresh in their mind is a military coup over the Syrians. So they think Rome showed up and the oppression has begun. Then perhaps we can militarily again throw Rome out the way we did Syria. That wasn't happening. Rome was too powerful. They had this time given up any hope as a nation that militarily with any strength of their own they could get rid of Rome. The only thing that they believed in was a divine intervention from heaven, the Messiah being returned, and then their nation would shine again. So when Jesus came on the scene, it was a total disappointment to them. So here it is in Jewish gospel. The reason the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew is because this is written to the Jews to hit them slap in the face of this is life in the kingdom. This is your king's edict, and it totally is the antithesis of what you expect okay now let's address why the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels are a bit confusing when Jesus taught he taught the end game in other words he taught principles for the end of the Christian life of what it looks like as a polished product he didn't teach the process James, I've got an illustration for you, and this is just between you and I, and you can listen if you want, but I'm going to talk to James for just a minute. If a man showed up on the scene with a new kind of chainsaw, and the chainsaw was light as a feather, sharp as a razor, and it ran on air, it cut trees, but if it hits your body, it would not cut your skin. James is getting very excited at this process. This is one you could tote up with a, a pinky up, up the thing and never runs out, never breaks down. And he presented you with that chainsaw. One of the questions that you might have is, how did you make this? Well, he's not explaining how he made it. He's presenting to you the end product. The Sermon on the Mount is the end of the Christian life what it ought to look like when Jesus is having his way in us. I gave you four different words, and I want to explain the words. And first of all, it's the word constitution. Constitution is the deep down part of you at the very core of you. 
It's the essence of your being. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, he comes into the area of your constitution. It's an old word, I know, but it's a good word because it starts with C and the other ones start with C, so it helps you remember. Your constitution is the deep down core of you. Adam, when we were created in Adam, Adam was the sense of our constitution. Okay? Before a man comes to Christ, he is in Adam. When a man comes to Christ, Adam comes into him, and that man is placed in Christ, and now the very core and constitution of that man is Christ. Everybody there with me? Before a person's saved, they're in Adam. After saved, in Christ. Adam is their constitution. That's why sin is in the world. That's why people act like they do. That's why we're in the mess that we are. Because the core of life is the heart of man. The constitution of man is wrong. And it's Adam. And it can't be fixed by politics. It can't be fixed by intelligence. It can't be fixed by training, reformation. Nothing touches the constitution of a man. It takes the spirit of God to upset a man, to show him that he's sinful and he's of need of Christ. And again, no church training, no membership will do that for you, no baptismal waters will do that to you, and nothing will help you in that place except the Spirit of God takes you out of one kingdom, which is Adam, kingdom of darkness, and places you into the kingdom of light. Everybody got that? So at the very core, a man's changed by his constitution. The second word that I want to give you, and what I'm telling you is the process to get to where Jesus is teaching. If you don't understand the process, the process is laid out by Paul in the epistles. When Jesus came, he had a short time, and he knew he couldn't take the whole process. So he laid out the end game, and then he went back by the Holy Spirit and wrote through the Apostle Paul the epistles to tell us, now this is the process in order for it to happen. All right? Sanctification, if you will. The second thing that happens is as we understand our constitution, we begin, did it ever come up? All right. Because I do want you to see the words because it just, it kind of helps to see the words to submit it in your, cement it in your mind. You can remember the words? Okay. But see, now you're jumping ahead, so don't look at the words. Everybody not look, look at the words? Don't look at the words. Susan, I see you writing them down. No, don't do that. <laughs> All right. All right, constitution. There we go. All right. The second one, if we're going to get to the words, is condition. This is where the mind comes in. And Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. This is where we be begin to understand my constitution has changed. I must now think differently. I must think according to Christ rather than the flesh. And I must begin to learn as a Christian, first of all, who I am in constitution, and then we begin what Romans talks about, the renewing of the mind, the transference of the mind now to think that I'm crucified with Christ, I'm alive to God, Christ is in me, and I begin to think completely different. Everybody, now that's something you do. By your faith and your constitution, your condition begins, your, I'm sorry, your, yeah, your conditioning of your mind becomes different and you think differently and all of a sudden you begin to grow according to the constitution. It all relies on what lays at the base. And if Christ is at the base, 
you've got something to work with, and you, as Ed said this morning, you begin to drink the, the living water, and you begin to understand the living water is in you, and your condition begins to change. Now, this is, has nothing to do with how you behave yet. This is not your conduct. This is the way that you think. But the way that a man thinks controls what he does. You'll do stupid, crazy things when you're thinking stupid, crazy. Okay? It's your mind's not right. I think the time has passed now for me to be able to confess this to you. It was very painful for me for a couple weeks, but I don't, I'm an open book, so I've got to tell you, I had one of the craziest nights of driving in the city of Orlando that you can absolutely imagine. We left, we had a great day with John and Rebecca and Benny at Disney, wonderful day, but you know you're tired. At the end of the day, it was 8.30, I said, Karen, we're going. We had a nice hotel set there, it was 8.45, should have take, I should have been at the hotel at 9 o'clock. I pulled into the hotel lobby at 11 o'clock. I went around in circles, and I know what you're saying, I know what you're thinking, well, why don't you just type it into your phone? When you begin to think wrong, you begin to behave wrong, and you're not thinking anymore. I stopped at eight different gas stations asking, see, I'm not thinking. I'm asking gas attendants the directions. I look like Clark Griswold times 10. <laughs> Karen said, I've never seen you act like this. I was just, I was just doing like that, going down, just, you know, throwing my glasses down. Yeah, John, you want to throw something in? Yeah, mom texted, he said, pray for dad. He's losing his mind. <laughs> I was behaving poorly because I wasn't thinking correctly. Finally, I slowed down and said, you know what? I'm not moving till I know where I'm going. And so I called the hotel and I said, a nice guy got on the phone. John, I said, John, you're, you're going to stay on the phone with me till I find your nice hotel. He said, okay, sir, we'll do it. And so we, just, we spent a few minutes together and there I was at the hotel there's a lot more that went on. It fell apart even more from there. But I'm thinking, I'm going to get to the hotel and have a piece of apple pie at 9 o'clock at the restaurant. I'm going to enjoy the waterfalls inside the restaurant. Needless to say, there was no apple pie and there was no waterfall. All right. But condition is the way that you think. We have been given Christ. Now we must learn Christ. Remember when Paul said to the Galatians, I agonize again until Christ is formed in you. That's a process of conditioning where we realize that Jesus now wants to manifest himself in us. I must now think differently. It's a process. takes a long time. But as you begin to think dif differently, you begin to act differently. Your conduct changes. You're going to find, well, I'm not going to jump ahead to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the conduct born out of condition, born out of an understanding of constitution. You can't change yourself. You can't do it. Sin is too strong. Sin is too hard. So we rely on the constitution of Christ within. We think differently. We begin to rely on the water of life within us. And that begins to change slowly our conduct. So we begin to act differently. And conduct played out over a long period of time turns into character. Your character is your responsibility. You develop that character based on the constitution within. You think differently. You begin to behave differently over a pattern of time. And behavior over a long period of time develops a thing called character. The reason the teachings of Jesus are so difficult 
is because he's talking about a man of character here. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are not things that you do. It's who you are. That's deep. That's process. You're going to find one of the hardest things Jesus said was turn the other cheek. In the ancient world, that was called a double slap. It was offensive to the Jews, and it went like this. You ready? It wasn't... No, it was... It was fast. So to turn the other cheek, you get slapped with one way. It is a reaction to turn the other cheek. It is not thought through. I can behave pretty well if I know that you're going to attack me and I see it coming. But when you attack me unexpectedly, my reaction isn't always the best. (laughs) See? This is a man who by character will react because our reactions kind of tell the character of our lives. See? This is... All right. Let's talk about a couple more things. We'll get off of that. I'm going to shut that down. We're good. Uh, it is in chapter 5, and I want you to turn there. The opening to this message before in chapter 4 talks about repent. Repent is thinking differently. It's understanding that the world's entire way of, 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 of living is wrong. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So you see that the teachings of Jesus, and by the way, there's a dangerous teaching out there, and some of you have alluded to me that you've heard it in times past, and I want to address it. It's a dangerous teaching that says, look, all of Jesus' teachings and parables were pre-Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came. So they're based in law. Oh, no. Everything Jesus, I'm just warning you of a teaching that's out there. It's crazy what you'll hear out there. And this comes out of the grace circles, okay? And it says that really this was to the Jews and based on law. Oh, no. Everything Jesus taught, he meant it. The Beatitudes, before we get into them a little bit, are not products of a natural disposition. There are some people that are just naturally more meek than others, right? There are some people that are more naturally aggressive than others. These Beatitudes are not about natural disposition. What he's going to say to us is what every Christian all the time should be like in character when Christ is having his way. These Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is not something that we can do. I love Oswald Chambers' thought of it. He said the Beatitudes and all that were given to us to frustrate the tar out of us. They sound beautiful, and we think if we could just live like that, but we can't. Sin is too deep and too strong in the human realm. Around the turn of the century, the church began to teach a doctrine of uh, a social-type gospel that taught that, look, we don't have to worry about the doctrines of Paul or the teachings of the epistle. Let's just live like Jesus. Let's just follow the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Sheldon's book, um, oh, what was Sheldon's book? 
yeah, what, yeah, what would Jesus do? That in his steps was born out of that kind of movement. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do? The problem is we can't do what Jesus did or does. Sin is too strong. Now that movement around the turn of the century of a social gospel that said, look, just follow the teachings, man, and the whole world will be converted to Christ and we'll all just follow Jesus. What knocked that out was called World War I and World War II. And the idea that man is basically good was destroyed by Hitler and the Nazis and, and all the wars that have ever been. So you don't hear about that type of gospel anymore because sin is too strong. Listen to me carefully. Poor doctrine, bad teaching in the Christian realm can always, almost always be traced back to a misunderstanding or an unestimation of the power of sin in mankind. So we're given these teachings to drive us to Jesus Christ, to understand that only God can do this in a man. You can do it physically, you can turn the other cheek physically, but I guarantee in your heart you're slapping the tar out of them. Okay? Let's look at chapter 5 of Matthew and just get into a few verses and we'll, we'll, we won't get too far tonight. A lot of introduction because you've got to understand the framework. Now, before we look at the opening verses, this is a sequential sermon. In other words, it begins with blessed are the poor in spirit, which will naturally gravitate toward those who mourn, which will naturally lead us to those who are meek. So you cannot take this sermon and pull out anything. Everything is in an order to knock it down sequentially. Everybody got that. That's why this thing is misunderstood. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now, there are tremendous things in this verse. It said that seeing the multitudes, Jesus looked out and saw multitudes. This sermon was not given to the multitudes. If you read carefully, it said that when he saw the multitudes, he went up into a mount or mountain, and when he sat down, it was his disciples who came to him. Did he not care about the multitudes? I mean, if he was in a present-day evangelist, he would have set up a huge speaker system and preach and had a Billy Graham invitation. I'm not mocking. I, Billy Graham's a great man of God and led a lot of folks to Christ. But that, that's kind of our method today, isn't it? Oh, don't go home and think I bashed old Billy. I think I, <laughs> I'll, lose, I'll lose some crowns in heaven for that. I thought I should have even said that. But he didn't do that. His method for reaching the multitude was to gather around some disciples and pour into them truth that would change their lives so that they, taking the life of Jesus Christ, would affect the multitudes. That is his method. It is not a direct message to the multitude. It is the lives that we lived in the midst of the multitudes with the message of the gospel. We are powerful ambassadors for Christ 
when he is having his way in us and living his life. We impact people many times without saying a word for the gospel. Now, we should say a word, but it is the word with a life that Jesus is having his way that is the power of the gospel in the lives of people. Notice the difference between grace and law. Matthew Henry does a good job in, in, in giving three different differences. Matthew Henry says this, that in the law, God came down to the mountain. But in grace, Jesus goes up the mountain. In the law, there were thunders and lightnings coming out of dark clouds, giving the law. But in grace, he opens his mouth and simply speaks. In the law, the people were commanded to stay away from the mountain for fear. But in grace, when he was sat, his disciples came to him. Isn't that beautiful? That's grace versus the law. So in verse 1, it says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and it simply says, He opened his mouth, and he taught them. And we will wait till next week to begin. <laughs> oh, do you want to do one tonight? Yeah. Is it okay? Yeah. Okay, this is a good crowd. Most crowds are like, time to go home. We'll wait till next week. Look at verse 3. It is the entrance into the kingdom of God, both for the lost and for the saved as they grow in grace. It says, blessed are the poor in their spirit. Not the poor. There's nothing blessed about not having money to pay the bills. There's nothing blessed about poor. This is the blessed are the ones who are poverty in their spirits spiritually bankrupt. Before a person comes to Christ, as Ed preached to us this morning, they must see that they are spiritually sinful and bankrupt. As long as a man has something in his hands, he cannot come to Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poverty of spirit. This is also how the Christian grows in grace. Ed's best point this morning, and he had several good points. Did you catch his best point? Ed, do you remember your best point? You liked them all, didn't you? I liked them all. Let me tell you Ed's best point. When he said this, he said, Jesus said, or the woman said, the well is deep. You have nothing to draw with. And he said, lady, you have no idea how deep that well is. The well of Jesus Christ is unfathomably deep. But Christians do not drink of that well and rest in constitution many times because in our spirit we are not poverty stricken. God is always bringing us to the point where we cry out, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Take a man and give him every circumstance that's perfect. G give him a great job. Give him a great family. Give him a nice home. Give him a 
nice vehicle. Give him friends and family and loved ones. Give the man everything you can imagine with hardly any circumstances that are bad. And he is miserable without Jesus Christ or miserable if he isn't relying on Christ. And God at times, through the Spirit of God, takes our souls and by grace pulls back the covers and it's a painful experience to see how miserable we are without him. And we tend as Christians, and I'm talking about believers, because number one, this is the way to get into the kingdom, the way a person gets saved is they realize, I have nothing. I am destitute. I am desperate. I am going to hell. I am without anything, and I cry out for a Savior. But it is the same process for we who know Christ. Because when you are satisfied with all things around you, do you hunger after righteousness? You see within your spirit something there to rest and rely on. And there's a deadness to it, but you still cling until God begins to take that away. And he doesn't have to take away the, bad, the circumstances and make them bad. He has the ability to reach into our souls, even when everything is perfect, and pull away the cover and send you into darkness where you are depressed, discouraged, and you don't know why. Have you ever had a dark cloud descend upon you? You don't know why. Ever happen? He sent the dark cloud to you. You are in the midst of despair because he wants you to see the desperation of your spirit. The poverty of your soul. Because Jesus said, happy, happy, happy are those who are poverty stricken within them. What's the promise? You read it. Look at it. I've closed my Bible. I'm not sure what it says. Read it. What's it say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. We go into the realm. Now, kingdom of heaven is exclusive to Matthew. No other writer talks about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? It is the authority of the king in the lives of his subjects. It is not the church. Within this church, we who have bowed to the king are a part of the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is bigger than the church. It includes Old Testament saints. It includes those who get saved in the great tribulation. It includes all those throughout the ages of time that have bowed to the king of heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven to the king. So my question to you tonight, have you bowed to the king? Are you in the kingdom of heaven? And if you are, the pathway of growth is to understand how miserably empty you are because it is only then that he is your life. We cling and cling and cling to just about everything, do we not? Except him.